It has been biblically prophesied that there will be an entity who will falsely claim to be Christ, and that his arrival is the long-awaited second coming of the Son of God. Whilst it is thought by many to be one single entity, others see the Antichrist as multiple entities, as noted in the epistles of John, where the core mentions of the figure stem from. We also see another term in false Christ to describe the Antichrist, which can be found in the Gospels of Matthew, where Jesus warns his disciples about being fooled by false prophets that will pretend to be him. He is also seen as the man of sin in the epistles of the Thessalonians. It is in the New Testament, specifically the epistles of John, that the Antichrist is detailed, both in the plural and non-plural forms. The first epistle serves as a sermon to remind believers about the life and death of Jesus, and to reaffirm their belief in the one who died for their sins. The epistle reads in 2.18-19, through 19, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have come. From this, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belong to us. This is the first mention of the Antichrist in the Bible, and as we can see, the writer intends to reveal to us that the Antichrist is not one singular entity, but instead multiple entities, a group even, who though were spawned from the faithful, did not become faithful themselves, or went on to sin against man and God alike. It appears that this group left those who were faithful and sought to live separately in contradiction to the word of God. Those who would live righteously, however, would be blessed by God, and the epistle seeks to strengthen this belief by reminding believers of what they will receive should they remain loyal. The epistle goes on to promise eternal life, but not before reminding believers that those who deny that Jesus is the Son of God are the Antichrist. It is told in John 2.22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised to us, eternal life. The last mention of the Antichrist in the Epistle of John is in 4.1-3, where it is stated, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Through this, believers are warned not to trust every spirit that they may encounter, but to test these spirits to learn if they are from God or not. We are told that there are many so-called prophets in the world, and that many will try to fool the believers, but that it can be easily deduced as to whether they are true or not by whether they are able to declare that Jesus Christ has come from God. Any spirit unable to do this is thought to be of the Antichrist, and should therefore not be trusted. 
Meanwhile, in the second epistle of the Thessalonians, an account thought to be written by Paul the Apostle, though often disputed, the Church of Thessalonica is given praise and advice on how best to continue their worship of God. The first chapter of the second epistle, entitled The Man of Lawlessness, describes a figure that will seek to claim ownership over God's work and seek to set himself as the all-powerful being. This figure will also attempt to convince followers of the faith that the Lord has already come, but this is a lie to furthermore establish his own master plan. The first chapter reads, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Interestingly, this figure in question is never referred to as the Antichrist, despite exacting the same principles and motives that the Antichrist is said to do. Instead, he is referred to as this man of lawlessness, one who is doomed to destruction, but also one who will proclaim himself as God. It is implied here that many will believe this to be true, and that many will be led astray by this false messiah. The author of the second epistle of Thessalonians continues to remind the church of Thessalonica, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what it is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow, with the breath of his mouth, and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. As you can see, we are told that the man of lawlessness, or what some may perceive to be the Antichrist, is already at work, but that Jesus Christ will eventually overpower him and destroy him. We get a glimpse of this figure's role within the world that he will use miraculous powers to convince man of who he is, and that he will lie and deceive in order to get humanity to bow before him. Those who do fall for his schemes though will perish, because they refuse to see the truth and so cannot be saved. Interestingly, we also see that these people are damned from the beginning, as God then sends them a delusion so powerful that they cannot help but be sucked in by the ploys of this man of lawlessness, and that for this, they will be condemned for not having seen that which would have been clear had they been righteous. Another key point to talk about here in the second epistle is the seventh verse which tells us, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. 
There has been some debate as to who exactly it is that is holding back the secret power of lawlessness, but some contemporary theories suggest that this force at work is actually the Roman Empire, and at the fall of the Roman Empire, it made way for the prelude of the Antichrist. Unlike the Epistle of John, the Antichrist here is not considered to be a group of people, but instead one singular entity, this man of lawlessness. This idea is furthermore echoed in Matthew 24, a chapter titled The Destruction of the Temple and Signs of the End Times, which sees Jesus explaining to his disciples what to look for in the final age when he returns. Jesus states, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Some see some parallels in Jesus' statement here to the world in which we currently live in, and therefore see these signs as the end times, and an inclination that Jesus' second coming is imminent. Incidentally, this would also mean that a false prophet is imminent as well, this very antichrist or man of lawlessness that we have been discussing. In the same chapter, Jesus elaborates furthermore, telling us, at the time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Mark 13 tells us the very same story of Jesus, explaining the signs of the end times, but most notably he tells us in 13.22, False messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard, I have told you everything ahead of time. Another account which some relate to the Antichrist is one of the four visions by the prophet Daniel, more specifically Daniel 7-8, which sees the emergence of a little horn that grows out of a terrible beast. Daniel tells us, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. In Daniel's vision, he sees four beasts representing four kingdoms, the first three are thought to represent Babylon, Persia and Greece. The fourth beast though is thought to be the most dreadful, the most terrifying and the most frightening. It came with large iron teeth and a set of ten horns, but whilst Daniel is examining these horns, 
he notices a smaller horn begin to grow amongst them. This horn is the most unusual, with human-like eyes and a mouth that boasts. Daniel is so troubled by this one particular horn that he asks an angel in 719 to explain it, which the angel tells him in 23 through 26, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. As can be seen, the horn takes on a very similar role expected of the Antichrist, in that he speaks against the Most High and seeks to oppress people of the faith, whilst changing the state and law of things, likely to upset that of the faith. It's understood that his rule will in fact take place for a total of three years, before his power is taken away and he is destroyed by God. Some see the entirety of the fourth beast to be a representation of the Roman Empire, and that the little horn is a world leader who would take on the role of an antichrist. Others believe that the emergence of this little horn suggests a resurgence of the old Roman Empire, or at least a similar system that will comprise of ten world leaders, three of which will be manipulated by the little horn, or the antichrist, to help him achieve his vision. He will be a true tyrant as he seeks to control every aspect of one's life, and may even expect or demand worship on a global level. There have been some figures in history who have been associated with or even accused of being the Antichrist. Pope John XV was accused of being the Antichrist in the 10th century by the Archbishop Reims Arnulf, who was deposed from his post. Bitter over this decision, Arnulf would say of Pope John XV that he was both ignorant and illiterate, and implied that he and his associates were ungodly and did not deserve to be where they were. He went on to say that as the Pope sits in the house of the Lord, surrounded by gold, preaching the word of God, while still being immoral, was certainly a sign of the Antichrist in the flesh. He would be the first Pope to be accused of being the Antichrist, but certainly not the last. Pope Gregory VI was accused by Cardinal Benno of being a member of the Antichrist, or the Antichrist himself, going on to write lengthy and scathing accounts of necromancy, torture, and the commissioning of assassinations by the Pope during his papacy. Prince Archbishop of Salzburg, Eberhard II, would denounce Pope Gregory IX as one that many saw as an Antichrist, and would even go on to say that the entire papacy was the same little horn that Daniel had seen in his vision. The sentiment was echoed by many Protestant reformers of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, who would come to see the church as having led the masses into the great apostasy by influence of the papacy, and that all popes were forms of the Antichrist. Such a belief was interesting because the Antichrist, as far as Jesus' teachings go, tell us that he will show up during the final age, proclaiming to be God himself, 
But by this Protestant idea, the Antichrist is a constant being, one who has long since infiltrated the church and poisoned the masses with falseness and deception. The main principles that may lead some to believe that the papacy is of the Antichrist is likely from the fact that the Pope takes it upon himself to rule the church, a church that many believe belong to Christ and only Christ, and therefore should not maintain a hierarchical system that establishes a leader as such. Another idea is that as many sources believe, the Antichrist is prone to stick around for a while, similarly to how the papal system works, in that one Pope leaves and another takes his place. Roman Catholicism teaches that there will be a set of trials that must be undergone before the second coming of Jesus, and that the ultimate trial will be where Christians receive solutions to problems or are offered great riches and powers at the cost of apostasy. This will be the Antichrist's offering as he tempts man off of the righteous path, as he glorifies himself and accepts man's blessings and gratitude for that which he gives them. An excerpt by Roman Catholic Bishop Fulton J. Sheen wrote in 1951, The Antichrist will not be so called, otherwise he would have no followers. He will come disguised as the great humanitarian. He will talk peace, prosperity, and plenty not as means to lead us to God, but as ends in themselves. He will tempt Christians with the same three temptations with which he tempted Christ. He will have one great secret which he would tell to no one. He will not believe in God. Because his religion will be brotherhood without the fatherhood of God, he will deceive even the elect. He will set up a counter-church. It will have all the notes and characteristics of the church, but in reverse and emptied of its divine content. It will be a mystical body of the Antichrist that will in all externals resemble the mystical body of Christ. Other Christian interpretations see the Antichrist not as a person or people, but as a reoccurring situation that threatens life and has extreme consequences. Such situations could be world wars, terrorism, genocide, and or humanitarian disasters. Others see the Antichrist embodied in actual figures, as mentioned earlier, in the form of popes, but more specifically the Roman emperors Caligula and Nero. Meanwhile, the Antichrist is also thought to be related, at least metaphorically, to several other figures in the Bible, including the dragon from Revelations, or Lucifer, the beast, the false prophet, and the whore of Babylon. Meanwhile, in Judaism, there doesn't appear to be an Antichrist, unless you consider the figure known as Armilus, who is thought to persecute believers under his reign until the final day where he is destroyed. Like the Antichrist, his mission to hold dominion over the faithful remains the same, but unlike the Antichrist, he does not try to impress upon them, nor try to pretend that he is a holy figure. While little is put forth about Armilus, it is understood that he is the son of Satan and an unknown virgin woman. He is often thought to be a horribly disfigured looking man, with a bald head, mismatching eyes, deaf, crippled, and with one arm significantly longer than the other. In Islam, however, the Antichrist takes the form of al-Masir al-Dajjal, or simply, the Dajjal, meaning, the deceiving messiah. Whilst he is absent in the Quran, he is spoken about in the Hadith, a record of words and actions of the Prophet Muhammad. 
much like Christianity, that the Dajjal is thought to emerge out of the East and will perform miracles in the way Jesus once did, including healing the sick and even raising the dead. It's understood that many people will be deceived by him, most of them sinners or the vilest kind, but that he will be destroyed when Jesus eventually returns.